We are going to celebrate the the Lord's Supper today. And in the Lord's Supper, we have God's Word made visible. But to begin with, we're going to hear uh, God's Word proclaimed. Please keep the Supper before you. Keep the Supper in view. And uh, I trust as we hear uh, the Word proclaimed, we hear the Word audibly, we will have that sense of expectation that sense of anticipation. I invite you, encourage you to turn with me in the Word of God uh, to two portions. Haggai chapter 2. Again, that's Haggai chapter 2. And Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. When I was 11 years old, maybe it was 12 years old, I attended a two-week boys' summer camp in the Muskokas. This is in central Ontario, where there are literally thousands of lakes. Uh, Great camp, great memories. Uh, Memories of long canoe trips into the the provincial park. And one particular evening, all the boys, I think there were 200 of us close to it, maybe more, we were gathered back at the main camp, and a thunderstorm rolled in. And so the staff had to cancel all of the planned outdoor activities. And they weren't really sure what to do with 212 year old boys until one staff member had the brilliant idea, the bright idea of gathering us all in the main dining hall and showing Fiddler on the Roof. Well, if you want to send 200 boys over the edge, you just show them Fiddler on the Roof. It was pure bedlam. And I think maybe halfway through, I crawled up in the corner in a fetal position. And and as I'm prone to do, I went to sleep. I left a bad taste taste in my mouth, Fiddler on the Roof. It was maybe 20 years later before I actually sat down and watched that movie. And there are some interesting sayings, some uh, statements that uh, merit some attention. And in the middle of the movie, a character, Tevi, is that how you say his name? He uh, declared the following uh, to the Lord, to God. I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? What was he expressing? As a Jew, he was expressing what he perceived to be the burden of living under the law, the law. Now go back with me, back in time, 3,500 years, give or take a century, And this group of people known as the Israelites are living in the land of Egypt. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. God, to be faithful to the promise he had made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, leads these Israelites out of Egypt. It is an act act of grace. It is an act of unmerited favor. Leads them out of Egypt miraculously brings them to a place called Sinai, and there he gives them the law. Always remember, grace preceded the law. He gave them the law, and in that law, we can can think of it really in terms of three divisions. One, two, three. And so there were laws, what we might call moral laws, given for governing personal behavior, personal conduct. So that's category number one, moral law. And then there was a second category, I think we can call it civil law. And so these were laws given 
to, uh, to set up, to establish, to implement government. They were a theocracy. They needed to be governed, and so they needed laws, civil law. And then there was a third category, ceremonial law. And so not laws concerning my behavior, personal behavior, personal conduct, not laws concerning our government, how we're going to function as a society and as a nation, but laws uh, governing or regulating our worship, our religion. So you got that. Three categories which make up the law, that covenant that God made through Moses with the nation of Israel. Now, interestingly, running throughout these three categories, moral, civil, ceremonial, we find a number of laws, rules, regulations uh, concerning how to distinguish between what is clean and what is unclean. What is clean, this is the language that is used, what is clean and what is unclean. Why? Uh, Simply put, uh, the closer one gets to God, the closer one draws to God, the cleaner they must be. It's odd, I know, bear with me. But they had all of these rules and regulations in minutia, detailed. Uh, This is clean, this is unclean. That is clean, that is unclean. And so if a person touched a a dead human or a, a dead animal, they were what? They were unclean. If someone contracted an infectious diseases, a disease like boils or a rash, they were unclean. If someone touched mildew, mildew, on clothing or in the house, they were unclean. If someone experienced a bodily discharge, they were unclean. If someone touched or ate certain animals, you know, such as pigs, which God had labeled unclean, if I came into contact with an animal that God had said was unclean, I therefore became unclean. And if I was unclean, it meant I could not worship God as part of the covenant community. Why? Because the closer one draws to God, the cleaner they must be. Now, why did God do that? Why did God give them all of these rules and regulations concerning what is clean and what is unclean? Uh, Let's be very clear. There was and there is nothing inherently wrong, bad, or evil with any of those things. If that's how we've understood it, we've misunderstood it. There was nothing inherently wrong or evil with those things. But God chose those things. Why? Because in some way they they represented death or were associated with death. Or in some way they they were affiliated or could be understood as disorder. Death and disorder, the consequences of what? Sin and the fall. And so God was sending them a greater message than, oh, just don't, don't eat pig flesh. Don't touch mildew. That was not the principal message. The principal message was what? That these things are representative. I want, them, I want these things to serve as a picture. I want these things to serve as an object lesson. I want these things to serve as a visible reminder of the fall and of the consequences of the fall. Death and disorder. I want these things to serve as a visible reminder of your sin. Therefore, I want these things to be an important object lesson. I want them to be a visible reminder that anyone who draws near to me must purify himself. That's the message. 
And so, young man, put you on the spot, um, single, going to visit that special someone. What do you do? At least, what do I hope you do? You comb your hair, right? You uh, wash your face, you brush your teeth, and you put on appropriate attire. If you don't, I suggest you do. Why? Because you want to be presentable when you meet that special someone. That is the idea here. This is the message that God is seeking to convey to the Israelites through the law. Yes, they have these moral laws, personal conduct. Yes, they have these civil laws for our government. They have these ceremonial laws for the religion. And throughout this, this, this classification between clean and unclean, why? A reminder of the fall, a reminder of death and disorder arising from the fall, and a reminder of their sin, and therefore a reminder that anyone who dares draw near to me, this is what the Lord is declaring, anyone who comes near me must purify himself. That is the intent. That is the intent of all of those laws. Now, I hope you're asking yourself, why? I thought we were going to Haggai chapter 2. What has this got to do with Haggai chapter 2? We can't make heads or tails out of the verses we're going to look at in Haggai 2 without that foundation, without having a clear understanding of these rules and regulations concerning what is clean and what is unclean. So with that foundation in place, follow along now as I read in Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, pause, Darius is the king of Persia. Persia is the world empire. The land that we would know as Israel, the city of Jerusalem, is not an independent nation. It is not an independent territory. It is under the rule of a king, a pagan king, a foreign king, King Darius of Persia. In his second year of reign, In the ninth month, 24th day, what happened? The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one, met, when, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will, I will bless you. From this day on, I will 
bless you. Now, by way of review, quickly. In chapter 1, we have these Israelites, these Jews, a remnant who had returned from captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem, given a project, a responsibility, the rebuilding of the temple, they had stopped working. And so God sends his prophet Haggai. He sends another prophet named Zechariah. We're concerned with Haggai. He sends Haggai in chapter 1 with a word of exhortation, a word of rebuke. The nation responds in fearful fearful obedience. Then we come into chapter 2, and God again sends the prophet Haggai to the remnant, to these Jews who are now working on the temple. He does not send him with a word of exhortation, but a word of what? Encouragement. This word of encouragement consists of three messages. The first begins in verse 1 of chapter 2. The second begins in verse 10 of chapter 2. The third begins in verse 20 of chapter 2. Last Sunday, we looked at the first. Right now, we're looking at the second. So the second part, or second message, which makes up this word of encouragement sent from God through Haggai to the remnant who are seeking to rebuild the temple but are disappointed, basically, at the prospect of their work. And so here, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, God sends Haggai. He sends his word through Haggai to the people. He sends him with three things. I think it's a good way to think of these verses. He sends him with three things. Firstly, he sends him with a probing question. A probing question. Verses 10 through 14. He tells him to ask the priests about the law. And so they have that law that God instituted with Israel at Sinai. There's a moral law, there's a civil law, there's a ceremonial law. Running throughout the law, you have all of these rules and regulations concerning what is clean, what is unclean. Why does he have to ask the priests? Because the priests are the expositors, the teachers of the law. And so I want you to go and I want you to ask the priests, I want you to consult them. Two scenarios, two situations. And we find the first scenario right there. In verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment. And so there's a man, let's suppose we're we're speaking hypothetically here. There's a man who's gone up to worship, uh, and he's offered this fellowship offering and presented it on the altar. And as per the law, he's allowed to keep some of the meat to take home and eat and share with his family. Now, because that offering was sacrificed to God, the offering is by definition holy. The meat is holy. Holy, And so this man now takes what is holy in God's sight, he puts it in the fold of his garment, and he's walking home. And as he walks home, he passes through a marketplace, and he starts bumping into things, touching things with the garment and with this meat. And when he gets home, he bumps into other things, bread, oil, stew, other food. Here's the question. By virtue of touching that which is holy, do all of those other things become holy? And the priests answer, and they're right, according to the law. No, holiness is not transferable. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two brings us into verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And so someone has has died. And to prepare the body for burial, I've come into contact with that body. And by coming into contact with that body, I am now unclean. And I begin to touch other things in the house. 
I begin to interact and rub shoulders with other people. Here's the question, here's the situation, here's the scenario. By virtue of me being unclean, coming into contact with these other things, do they become unclean? And the priest's answer, yes, they're right. What's the point? What is the point in these two scenarios? It is simply this. Holiness is not transferable. Cleanliness is not transferable. But uncleanness is. You think of it in terms of our own experience. You go out into the, into the garage and you take a gallon of water and you add a drop of motor oil. What happens to that water? It ruins it all. Now reverse the process. Uh, take a little drop of motor oil and add a gallon of water. What happens? It doesn't cleanse the motor oil, does it? The water is still corrupted. Cleanliness is not transferable. Our children enter the house with mud on their shoes. Or I enter the house with mud on my shoes. And the mud is transferred to the floor. Because the floor comes into contact with my muddy, dirty shoes, the floor becomes filthy, unclean. Why is it when I walk in the house with clean shoes, it doesn't make the floor clean? I've tried it. It doesn't work. Why is that? Because cleanliness is not transferable. But uncleanliness is. Holiness is not transferable. But unholiness is. This is the point he wants them to get. And now he draws a conclusion from these two scenarios right there in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. We have moved from the realm of the ritual into the realm of the moral. And what is God's point? People, you are unclean. You are unholy. I am no longer talking about ceremonial uncleanliness or ceremonial unholiness. I am declaring what you are by nature. I am speaking morally. You are unclean. And understand this. By virtue of the fact that you are unclean, as a matter of fact, you are filthy in my sight because of your sin. Everything you touch is unclean. You bring your tithes, they're filthy. You sacrifice those lambs and bulls, they are filthy. You're now picking up stones and building my temple. It is filthy. You say you serve me. Understand this. There's no mistaking it. This is his message. This is hard. I know right between the eyes. But this is what he's saying to them. It is filthy. Because you are filthy. And so Haggai is sent with this probing question. Designed to make the people understand who and what they are in the presence of a holy God. Now he sends Haggai with a second thing. A stinging rebuke brings us into verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward. Look at verse 18, very first statement. Consider from this day onward. Last word in verse 18. Consider. Give serious thought to. We've already heard this commandment twice back in chapter 1. God wants his people to be a thinking people. God wants his people to sit down, to pause, and to reflect. 
from this day on, here's what I want you to think about. From this day on, here's what I want you to consider. From this day on, here is what I want you to give serious attention to. That until this moment, whatever you did, I cursed it. Your barns are not full. The harvest is not being brought in. Your animals are miscarrying. Everything you set your hands to, I'm cursing. I've brought a drought upon you. Why? Because you are unclean. Because you are filthy, you are sinful. And you have not heeded my warnings. You have not heeded my commands. You have not turned your heart. From this day forward, it is a stinging rebuke. I know, but here, the good news is coming. I'll give you that right now by way of preview. The good news is coming. But here's what I want you to understand. A probing question, understand who you are. A stinging rebuke, never forget it. From this day forward, remember the curse I brought upon you because of who you are and your unwillingness to repent. And then he sends Haggai with a third thing. And here we have the good news, a comforting promise. It's right there at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, so consider from this day on, from this day on, something's changing. From this day on, something is different. From this day on, despite who you are, I will, I will bless you. I will bless you. Now, what what, what sense are we supposed to make out of that? Here we are, 21st century people, and uh, living in the here and now. We've stepped back centuries, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, and we're talking about a law that is unknown territory as far as we're concerned, Cleanliness, uncleanliness, washing my hands, purification. What's it all, what's, what's it all about? What, what, what is he saying here? And what is he saying to us? Well, that's why at the outset I asked you to find a second passage of Scripture. Do you remember? Mark chapter 7. I don't know about you, but in the evening when the sun has gone down and I'm sitting in the family room and I have a, I have a book, if uh, the light from the ceiling, if I sit on the couch and I look at that book, it's just kind of a gray. I can't, I can't make out any of the words. They just kind of run together because the lighting isn't that good. And so I have to get down. Anybody else had this experience? I have to get down to the edge of the couch, and there's a nice lamp there, lower to the ground. Turn that lamp on and direct the head of the lamp, the light, directly on the book I'm trying to read. And the moment I turn it on and shine that light on that book, suddenly what was formerly gray, there are discernible words. Suddenly it makes sense. I can read it. That's how the New Testament functions when it comes to the Old Testament. At times we get into the Old Testament and it's just gray. It's fuzzy. It's difficult to understand what's going on here. And so we're going to go to Mark chapter 7 and shine the light of Mark 7 on Haggai 2 and come to grips with precisely what God is saying. And so follow along as I begin reading in Mark 7 verse 14. The words of the Lord Jesus. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Not unlike what Haggai the prophet said, Consider, give serious thought to. Here the Lord Jesus is exhorting us to do the same thing. You hear, you listen, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him, and defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see 
that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Incidentally, there you have the most important phrase in this section. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile. A person. Does Haggai chapter 2 shine a little brighter now in understanding the message that God is sending to the remnant? Uh, holiness isn't transferable. Unholiness is. And I'm no longer talking about ceremonial cleanliness or uncleanliness, but the fact that you are unclean in my sight, you are filthy in my sight, and therefore all that you touch, all that you do, is unclean before me. But understand this. By an act of divine mercy, by an act of divine power, from this day forward, I will bless you. I will bless you in spite of you. I will bless you despite who you are. And despite the fact that nothing you do is clean in my sight, Nothing you do is pure in my sight. Nothing you do is holy in my sight. Now, I want to summarize that as we shone the light on it. I want us to see five things from Mark 7 and and in the context as we've read it and explained it in Haggai chapter 2. Five words, five, five truths, five lessons, five words of application. Number one, it is this. In the light of Christ's words, we see the depth of sin stained. In the light of Christ's words, we see the depth of sin's stain. He tells us, sin resides where? Sin comes from where? It isn't external, folks. It is what? It is internal. It comes from the heart. The Apostle Paul, he, uh, he's pretty black and white in terms of how he describes our sin. He, descri- he declares in Romans 3, verse 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. The word literally means spoiled, like spoiled fruit, corrupt. They have become worthless. As a result, no one does any good, not even one. I object. I look back on my life. I've done plenty of good things. I object in the strongest words possible. I, I, I obey more or less the laws of the land, the country in which I live. That's good. I uh, cut my neighbor's grass. That's good. I give away money. Cancer society, diabetes society, and other foundations. It's good. I've helped start schools. Uh, that's good. I've given to the poor. That's good. I visit people in the hospital. That's good. How dare the Apostle Paul say that I've never done anything good? How dare he say I am corrupt? 
I am worthless. I am spoiled in God's sight to such an extent that everything I do in God's sight cannot be described as good. Oh, how many people have struggled with that one? How many people here right now struggle with that one? Friend, to get your mind around goodness as declared in God's word, it is essential to understand two things. Think in terms of two categories. One over here, one over here. There are things, and for, don't stumble over the terms. I can't think of any better terms. But there are things over here in this category that we might describe as civil goodness, right? Civil goodness. And so someone goes and visits someone in the hospital. Well, well okay, we say that's good. It's a civil goodness. Someone gives away their fortune. Well, that's civilly good. It's for the benefit of others. It's for the help of others. Someone, someone yes, cuts their the, the grass, their, their neighbor's lawn. Yes, someone obeys the laws of, of the land, of the country. All of these things are good in the sight of man, aren't they? All of these things are for the benefit of society, aren't they? All of these things we're right in saying, right in, in affirming, are civilly good. Category number one, are we clear? But come over here to category number two, what we might call moral goodness. And here we are no longer concerned with what is good in man's sight. We are concerned with what is good in God's sight. What makes a deed, what makes something I do good in God's sight? The reason I do it. That's the only fact. The motive from which it flows. Understand this. A deed that I do, if it does not flow from love for God, And if it is not aimed at the glory of God, however good it might be civilly, it is not morally good in God's sight. Did you get that? And so something I do, giving away money, helping others, if it is not done out of love for God, if it is not done for the glory of God, it might be civilly good, but not morally good. And So I sell everything I have. And off I go to uh, Maputo, Mozambique, Sao Paulo, Brazil, or Calcutta, India, to live among lepers, leper colony, give away everything I have and minister to them and live in abject poverty and expend myself in helping those people. Some people hear about it. I end up with my face on the cover of Time magazine. And then some little cult starts following me and getting all excited And people applaud all that I do, and it's wonderful, and they think I'm wonderful. Understand this. If it is not done out of love for God, and if it is not aimed at the glory of God, it is a filthy rag in God's sight. Because all that we touch by virtue of our filthiness is filthy in God's sight. And at the risk of offending people's sensibilities, and I've really wrestled whether to say this or not, but I fear we've lost the full impact of it. Isaiah, where God speaks of filthy rags, he is speaking of the menstrual rag. Do you understand that? Sheds new light on it, doesn't it? That is what he is saying. Our good deeds are like in his sight. Because we are filthy, because we are unclean, everything we touch, no matter how good it might be in the eyes of man, no matter how good it might be in the eyes of society, if it is not done out of love for God, and if it does not aim at the glory of God, it is filthy in his sight. Now here's the problem, friend. The unbeliever does not love God. 
As a matter of fact, the unbeliever hates God. The unbeliever never does anything in his life, her life, motivated purely by the love of God and a desire to see God glorified. Do you know what that means? The unbeliever never does anything good. Do you know what that means? All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Oh, we see the depth. We see the depth of sin stain. Secondly, we see the hopelessness of our condition. The hopelessness of our condition. Hear the words of Jeremiah 2, 22. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. And so we can take the most acidic property that we know, pour it all over ourselves to try to get the dirt off us. And so we can do whatever we want externally. We can try to clean ourselves up, pick ourselves up, purify ourselves in God's sight. And no matter how hard we try, we can't do what? We cannot remove the stain. We cannot remove the filthiness. By nature, the natural man, the flesh, is hostile toward God. And it corrupts every thought, it corrupts every word, and it corrupts every deed. That's why the Apostle Paul, again, he makes it painfully blunt in Romans chapter 8. He says what? That no man, no woman, can please God. The hopelessness. Of our condition. Now, I know, again, that's a stumbling block for many people. What do you mean I can't please God? What do you mean I can't obey God? I mean, I, I, can, do, I can do whatever I choose to do. Um, I have free will, and, uh, and so I'm free to choose right now. If I want, I'm free to choose God. And if I want right now, I'm free to obey God. If I want right now, I must have the ability uh, to please God. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions, friend. I went through this with the Sunday school some years ago, but it's worth repeating, worth going through now. Let me ask you a few questions. The first is this, so that we, we're very clear here in terms of what we can do and what we can't do. Uh, can God sin? Be careful how you answer. Can God sin? We affirm no. Here's my question. Doesn't he have free will? Yes. God is free to do whatever he wants. God can't sin, meaning what? Sin is against his nature. He can't sin, meaning he won't sin. Why? Because he doesn't want to sin. It is contrary to his nature. Satan, can he repent? We say, no. Well, doesn't Satan have free will? Yes, Satan is free to do whatever he wants, which is consistent with his nature. Guess what? Satan never wants to repent. Therefore, Satan won't repent. He can't repent because it is contrary to his nature. Friend, can you please God? Can you obey God? Can you choose God right now? No. Why? Because by nature we are at enmity with God. By nature we are hostile to God. We are free to do whatever we want. Guess what? In the flesh, by nature, by virtue of who we are right from birth, we do not want God. Therefore, we will never and can never Obey God. Therefore, we can never please God. It was uh, James Montgomery Boyce years ago gave a wonderful, powerful illustration. He said, look, imagine, imagine a big lion in a cage. And this lion hasn't uh, eaten for a week or so. And a man walks up to this cage quickly, carefully, opens the door, 
throws in a basket full of uh, vegetables. Will a lion eat the vegetables? No. Can the lion eat the vegetables? Yes, there's nothing stopping him. There's nothing preventing him. But will the lion eat the vegetables? No. Why? Because it's contrary to his nature. He is a carnivore by nature. He will starve before he eats those vegetables. Now throw in a basket full of meat. Different story. He devours it. Do you get the idea, friend? By nature, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Are you free to obey God? Yes, there's nothing outside of you stopping you from obeying God. Guess what, though? You will only ever act and choose in accordance with the desires of your own heart. And understand this, the desires of our heart are filthy to the core. And we are hostile enemies of a holy God. Well, that conveys to me the hopelessness of my condition. Christianity, friend, is not about cleaning up your act. You cannot clean up your act. Christianity is not about doing the best you can. What is your best? Christianity is not about you pleasing God or earning favor with God or meriting favor with God. We are filthy by nature, and all that we touch is corrupted by our filthiness. So it brings us to a third essential truth. It is this. We see the need. Oh, we see the need for divine intervention. We see the need for divine intervention. We see we're completely dependent upon God's grace. We see we're completely dependent upon God's power. I know I've used this illustration here before. Let me use it again. I love it. It brings tears to my eyes every time I read it. It's of that uh, less than likable fella in the voyage of the Don Treader, uh, Eustace. Do you remember him? Uh, selfish little brat, right? That's Eustace. It's you and me. We are Eustace in the voyage of the Don Treader. I know you may want to hear that. Well, it's me anyway. It's C.S. Lewis is depicting humanity in Eustace. Self-centered, self-absorbed, self-consumed, selfish, filthy to the core. Eustace with the other children, they're looking for the lost knights. And they disembark on an island. Eustace, as he's inclined to do, goes off by himself, finds this treasure, and thinks this treasure is the answer to his problems, thinks this treasure is going to make him happy, and thinks this treasure will be the means by which he can get back at the other children and everyone who has ever crossed him in his life. He puts on a bracelet. What happens? If you've read the book, seen the film, he immediately turns into a dragon because he didn't realize what the treasure was cursed and immediately he turns into a dragon and he realizes his condition is what it is unchangeable he is in a hopeless and helpless condition he cannot do anything to change himself back but then the christ figure aslan comes to eustace what does he command eustace to do tear off your dragon skin and jump into that pool of water And so Eustace begins to scratch and claw frantically at the dragon skin. But what happens? As soon as he peels some off, what happens? It grows back. He peels it off, it grows back. He peels it off, it grows back. He can't do anything. And then Aslan utters these words, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And then Eustace says, oh, I was afraid of his claws. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone into my heart. Do you know why he thought that? Because it had. It had gone right into his heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. Then he caught hold of me and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything 
but only for a moment. And then I saw I had turned into a boy again. Oh, friend, the need for divine intervention. They're filthy to the core. We are in a hopeless state and condition, running frantically, furiously from God. Our only hope is divine, miraculous intervention. Fourth truth is this. We see that God transforms us by choosing to dwell with us. Amen. We see, as we, as we shine the light of Mark 7 on Haggai 2, we see that God transforms us by choosing to dwell with us. I mentioned, as we read through these verses in Mark, that the most important, significant phrase is found right at the end of verse 19. Return there with me. It's, it, it's anecdotal. Mark, Mark just adds it as a commentary by way of exposition. Thus he, that is the Lord Jesus, declared all foods clean. So the Lord Jesus, by affirming, look, it isn't what goes into a man that makes him unclean. Man is already unclean in the heart, and and, and out of his heart comes all of these sins. His ugliness manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And, And in making that declaration, in affirming that, Mark picks up on what the Lord Jesus was saying. In so doing, he was declaring all foods clean. He was showing, look, go back to that law. And go back to all of those rules and regulations that ran throughout the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. All of those things concerning what you could eat, what you could touch, things that would make you unclean, things that could make you clean. Understand this, that now in God's sight, it is all clean. Why? Because now stands in your presence the fulfillment of all that law. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. It is by virtue of the Lord Jesus who is perfectly clean, perfectly pure, perfectly holy. It is by virtue of this man, God-man, the Lord Jesus, perfectly clean, perfectly pure, perfectly holy, who at Calvary's cross gets dressed with our filthiness and bears the judgment accordingly, who now sets us free. Do you see it, friend? He's the fulfillment of the law, of it all. All of that law and those those lessons and symbols and types, they were all pointing to and preparing for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, there's cleanliness. The Lord Jesus Christ, there's the spotless Lamb of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, there's the one alone who is pure and blameless and holy in God's sight. There is the Lord Jesus Christ suspended on the cross between heaven and earth. And our filthiness, God takes our filthiness and clothes the Lord Jesus with our filthiness. So that when I believe in the Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin and I I see. I can't please God. I need divine intervention. It has to be of grace. There's not, everything I do, everything I touch is corrupt in God's sight. When I realize that, I look away from myself and I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and as my filthy garments have been transferred to him, uh, so too, praise God, his pure, pristine, spotless, sinless garments have been transferred to me, whereby I now stand what? Righteous 
in the sight of God. Remember Haggai. Yeah, let's go down this road. Haggai prophesies along with Zechariah. One of my favorite, personally favorite passages of Scripture, all of Scripture, is found in Zechariah chapter 3. Because there in Zechariah chapter 3, we read of a man named Joshua. He's the high priest, and he's standing where? In God's presence. If he's standing between, before God's presence, it must mean it's the Day of Atonement, because the high priest was only allowed to enter into God's presence one day each calendar year. So he's standing in God's presence. The Day of Atonement, a week before that day, do you know what the Israelites would do, the Jews would do? They would sequester the high priest. Why? Because they didn't want him to come into contact with anything unclean. They didn't want him to eat anything or touch anything that would make him unclean and therefore disqualify him from entering into the most holy place. So they sequestered him. And then the Day of Atonement, when it dawned, the high priest, he went to to the temple and he would bathe himself from head to toe, scrub himself vigorously, clean. And then he put on new clothes, white, pure linen. And then he offered a sacrifice for his own sins, the sins of his family, and he entered into the most holy place with that sacrifice. It wasn't done. He came back out. You know what he did? Stripped off his garments, went back at it again, head to toe, cleaned himself, put on new garments, linen, white, perfect, sacrificed another animal. Now for the sins of the priesthood, his fellow priests, he went with that sacrifice back into the holy place to make atonement for their sin. And then what did he do? He emerged yet again, stripped off those robes, went at it again, cleaning himself from head to toe a third time, put on new clothes, pure, white, perfect, sacrificed another animal for the sins of the nation, entered in through again into the presence of God in the most holy place to offer that sacrifice. Do you get the idea? This man is clean, right? In Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua is standing in the presence of God. And what does God say concerning him? His garments are filthy. His garments are filthy. No matter how much you clean yourself, no matter how much you seek to purify yourself, Joshua, understand this, that the one who sees your heart sees what you really are, and you are filthy by nature, and it touches and it corrupts everything that you do. But then we hear God declare this most wonderful statement, remove the filthy garments from him. I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. That's the gospel, friend. The gospel is that another Joshua, Jesus is Joshua in the Hebrew, right? Another Joshua, the Lord Jesus, comes. He is pure, he is spotless, he is perfect. At the cross, God clothes him with my filthiness and judges him accordingly. When I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God takes my iniquity away and he clothes me in Christ's festal robes, his pure, blameless, spotless righteousness. Oh, that is divine intervention. That is a transformation which God brings about by choosing to dwell with us. And quickly, because time is gone, number five, fifth truth, fifth point of application. We see that God's work involves a change from cursing to blessing. 
In the Old Testament context, the blessings, material blessings, they're symbols of far greater, deeper spiritual blessings that flow from the new covenant. Let me sum them all up in the words of a precious hymn. For me, he died. For me, he lives. And everlasting life and peace he freely gives. The curse is gone. I am now united with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And by virtue of my relationship with him, I am beneficiary of every spiritual blessing under heaven. Now I say all that by way of preparation for the Lord's Supper. That's the word proclaimed. And now you see here the word made visible for us. We see here the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was cursed for us. We see the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the purchasing price of our salvation, our redemption. And we're invited as believers, we're encouraged as believers to partake and to celebrate and to remember and to worship. So I encourage you to bow your heads with me now as I direct us in prayer and lead us in prayer as we prepare to partake of the emblems. Our Father, we are thankful that out of obedience to you and out of love for us, Jesus took our humanity to himself, lived a perfect life, bore the curse incurred by Adam's sin, died under that curse, and vanquished its power by his resurrection from the dead. The veil of the temple has been torn in two, and so we draw near as your children, joint heirs with Christ, and we partake of this supper, we ask you to strengthen our faith, strengthen our hope, and strengthen our love. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.